live from the what is this room we're in now it's the founders room at northern seminary and we have uh, a bunch of dudes around the table sorry for all the dudesses we should have got some dudesses around the table what happened today we're joined by Kier Bar- Pierre Keys. This is terrible. We're going to redo this. Your memory is like a, a sieve. It just in and, and out. Josiah Daniel. And we're going to do some introductions at some point. Yeah, and you've had a little bit too much banana pudding because you're sounding a little high on sugar right now. This is you're projecting. You're projecting now. So this is uh, the week of Martin Luther King Day, and we're here talking with a couple people. i got to turn this music off. There we go. Okay, the music is off. It's all right. We're going to fix this later. From Northern Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw and David Fitch. So, Pierre Keys and Josiah Daniel uh, are joining us for our first ever in uh, room, we don't have a studio. In room podcast. No, this is the founders' room. We're in the founders' room because someone else, a student, actually is studying at Northern and took our other room. So Pierre is a minister at City Point Community Church in the South Loop of Chicago. And what else do you do? You're up to a lot. You're bivocational. Amen. I am a mortgage underwriter at Wells Fargo. I am a third-year seminarian at McCormick. I'm a husband. I'm a father of a, she's four now, four-year-old and a one-year-old. Yeah, two kids. Um, uh, I am a You're Bulls good. fan and a Cowboys fan. How old are you? I am 33 years old. How about? Uh, I'm a West Sider, so. How about Blackhawks? Is that anything in the horizon for you? I, I, I do cheer for them to win, but I don't watch a full game. I the Lord hasn't graced me with the ability to stick through okay, this, a full game. This is what we would call cultural contextual theology. I grew up in Canada, ice hockey rules. Mm-hmm. You grew up in? North Lawndale. North Lawndale, where basketball yeah, is rules king. Yes. Is king. Yes. Okay, now we got to your left, my right, Josiah Daniels. What are you doing here? Well, I am a third-year... MDiv student at Northern. I live on the west side of Chicago, specifically North Lawndale. Lived there for two years in March. Love it there. It's a great neighborhood. Lots of fun things to do. Grew up there. I know. I know. Lawndale, Lawndale, Lawndale peeps ride together. So, yeah. But um, also a Bulls fan. Huge Bulls fan. Um, The Cavs lost last night. Not only did they lose, but they got absolutely decimated which I loved. Hey, man, Jimmy Butler. <laughs> Marquette grad. Hey, Dave never talks basketball with me. I'm glad we got some people in. So, okay, so Josiah Daniels, he's working at the Christian, he's working uh, at, in Lawndale. Yeah, in Lawndale. And, and then also, also. Wayne and John Perkins. Yeah. Uh, working on a Christian community development degree on the west side of Chicago. And he wanted all of us to know that he's a juggler. I am. So on to our topic today, we're going to be talking about. About hockey? No, I'm cutting you off. No one mentioned the Cubs around this table. No one. Ooh. Go Sox. Okay, here you go. All right, so Pierre pitched this idea to us about talking about the de-radicalization of Martin Luther King. And so I'm basically just going to sit back, and I'm going to let Pierre and Josiah dialogue with Fitch around all these different things. Okay, so 
why don't you start off here with a couple thoughts about why is Martin Luther or how has he been de-radicalized and what might that mean for uh, Black Lives Matter, for the church and mission in the world? To de-radicalize King, um, first, it means to kind of re-envision, re-invent, recast an image that's not true. Like, like So we cast um, Martin into the vein of the American dream instead of the dream of a beloved community. Mm-hmm. Um, so re- the reason that why that's important, because I believe the de-radicalization of King typifies the de-radicalization of the black church or the loss of the prophetic voice Mm. uh, where we have kind of suburbanized our faith to be about, you know, moral purity, to be about um, this fixation with doctrine and not a concern for the least of these. But the thing is, when it comes to King, everybody wants to attach itself or themselves to his legacy because King has been uh, uh, made an icon or he's been made a saint into like America's collective conscious. And no one wants to be on the wrong side of history as much as, you no, know, Fitch probably doesn't like that term. But like <laughs> King is like the best example how everybody has raced to be on the right side of history. Which um, just proves my point, by the way. Which yeah. proves your point. But it also shows, I believe, um, uh, Michael Eric Dyson shows in one of his uh, his, his biography of Tor King, I think the approval rating um, of King on his stance on Vietnam War and poverty amongst whites was 72%. Uh, oh, yeah, 72% disapproval rating. And amongst blacks, it was over 50%. That's because I believe that we have a tendency to not be able to realize how much we've been idealized. Ideologized. Well, it, right? I like that while we're living under that ideology. In other words, Malcolm, or I'm sorry, Martin Luther King became a symbol that got absorbed into the American ideology, and you're saying the black church cooperated with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not even... So, so like, one argument would be, well, King was once um, this uh, pacifist kumbaya figure, but um, if you read his letters to Coretta Scott King, one of the questions she says that he asked on his first date was, how does it feel to date a socialist? Hmm. And so that typifies, this is 1955 King, or 1950 King, where he, w- he had some Marxist leanings toward um, um, the economy. He had some pretty, um, he had some beliefs that um, where, where American McCarthyanism um, would have marginalized and made and, and made the American citizen to not believe it, but that but but I, but the the scandal of it all is when it matriculates to the church, because you now have who I believe uh, who have been the, the the conscious voice of America, the Black Church, um, that has been indifferent. Um, sanitized and, and not really caring for the least of these. So if you look at like if any of the top black churches now, we're big on expository preaching. Like we're that is our thing. If you don't, I mean, mm-hmm. if you don't expository, any hip hop peers in the room, hip hop 
Wow. Yeah, yeah. So like hip hop peers are like buttholes, right? Can I say that? We'll bleep it out okay. if necessary. So if, if if you don't come with the lyrical arsenal that that hits the benchmark of being super hip hop, hip hop peers are gonna be like, oh, you know, he's no KRS one. He's no, you know, Kendrick Lamar. And so that's when it comes to like the black church. So somebody like Martin, they will say, Oh, he's no expository preacher. He just took that text out of context because now he's relating scripture into Marxist theory and current social and economic realities. He's bring, he's actually bringing the the wasness into the isness, and we don't. No, that's not how you expository preach. That's amazing because uh, that expository preaching, that thing you just described in the black church, is is very much alive in the fundamentalist evangelical church, and it turns the Bible into information, in my opinion, mm-hmm. that the average person in the pew can use to their own means, and so that's why I criticize it. You're criticizing it for another reason. What is that again? I'm criticizing it because we've made a, um, an idol of it. Yes. Um, where most of the preaching is judged by not how it reaches the marginalized, but how effectively you handle the quote-unquote word of God. Uh, did you have three points? Did you break down every single word yes. uh, within the text? It's not like, okay, um, John 2, Jesus changes the water to wine. What does that mean for the people in Flint, Michigan? It's not that. It is, oh, Jesus changed the water to wine. Jesus can change water to wine. And we're very good. We're very poetic. We're very profound with that. But for for some people, especially in a post-Christian society, more oppressed groups are asking, well, what does this mean to me when I can't, when my bath water is orange? What is the gospel in that text for people? Right. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, you, you got something to say, but okay. So my, my question is this, uh, James Cohn wrote this book, um, MLK and Malcolm, you know, uh, the dream versus the nightmare. And he, he basically outlined the whole history of, of those two black figures in, in, in the civil rights movement. And, and he basically said, uh, I'm, I'm going to way oversimplify this, but he said that, uh, MLK was a, a nonviolent integrationist and, and, uh, Malcolm was a black nationalist, and he showed how the two played off of one another. And I've always said, okay, this is the early MLK, not the late MLK, uh, that Martin Luther King was too um, optimistic. This is what Cohn said, too. Too optimistic about the American dream. Whereas Malcolm realized that there was an absorption going on of the black identity into the white ideology, if we can put it that way. And therefore, I always thought you needed both. You needed, you needed the peace, which is the radical part of Martin Luther King, and you needed the sense that we need to know who we are and what we're called to be so that we can enter into a dialogue, not be absorbed into white culture with all its uh, racism ideology. And therefore, that what that says to me is, um, I mean, I'd like to know how you respond to that because I think the radicalness of MLK is his non. We we just had Reverend Samson, who was the one of three people to be ordained by MLK, by Martin Luther King, and uh, he was talking about the seven steps of nonviolence, and that that was the radical thing, and, and he said this. He said that he was in a meeting that MLK called with all his. Uh, with, with all his workers, 
1966, and he said, the FBI, I've been told by a black FBI agent, I'm going to be assassinated by the American government. And he called them together, and he said, we must, when I'm gone, we must stick together. Ralph Abernathy, you're going to take over, and we're not going to respond in violence. And I thought, man, this guy is a revolutionary, mm -hmm. and that nonviolence is so incredibly subversive to our culture. Mm -hmm. And yet, he was too optimistic about white society, whereas Malcolm was not. He realized what was at stake for the black identity. Can you speak into this, uh, this theme that you're working with on those two topics? I, I think Martin's view, especially if you read the uh, I Have a Dream speech, has a very eschatological undertone. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of language of like lying laying next to the lamb. You know, a lot of you know, baby in harm's way. Yeah. And I think integration for him was like the idea beloved community. Mm -hmm. Because ideally, you know, I should be able to live next door to you. Our kids go to the same school. Um, but at Malcolm was more of a, a pragmatist. He was a separatist and a pragmatist because he conceded the idea that it would never happen. Mm -hmm. But I think Martin creates a picture for the church to be charged with creating these communities where we actually do life together. Yeah. Uh, and I think that gets lost in a lot of critique of King where it's viewed as if um, King is um, integrationist, but I think what we call integration is King casting the picture of heaven on earth, of a beloved community. Really? Um, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's what I would say. Yeah, so... When you talk about the uh, re-radicalization of MLK, or de-radicalization, yeah. right? But you're asking, you're saying we also need to re-radicalize. Oh, right, 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 right. Well, right. but the de-radicalization of MLK is really how white society, in my uh, opinion, I'm I'm just riffing off of you because I'm just so so, so like historians. Uh, I forget the guy's first name, but his name is Rabato. He's a church historian, African American mm -hmm. church historian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He thinks the de-radicalization of the black church happened at the turn of the century, turn, turn of the 20th century, where you had um, uh, a temporary window after Reconstruction where America was intentional on creating um, safe spaces for blacks. Um, you, at that time, you had more blacks in the Congress. You had um, blacks migrating. You had the, um, the end of slavery. And you had um, the creation of these house clubs or um, what we now fraternities and sororities um, yeah. or, or even churches, for an example, were formed out of these house groups. And so blacks no longer had to rely solely on the church to get their marching orders on how to protest or, um, or to resist injustice. They could go to these secular organizations. And he said what, and what he happens, and I'm paraphrasing, is that America, let me make up a word, celebritizes the justice movement mm -hmm. where um, it's not about liberation, it's about survival. And so if you have, um, Harriet Tubman has the famous quote that she never said called, ain't I a woman? And she's never said that. That's Sir, that's Sir, Sir Sojourner Truth. Sojourner Truth, I'm right, oh yeah, Sojourner Truth. And, they, and someone asked her, hey, um, why do you allow this image to be created? You, you, you never said. And she says that I, um, let me get this right. She says that I create, I allow the style to support the substance. So I'm willing to allow 
you guys to um, kind of um, create an image of positivity that may even recast me for the sake of our survival, yeah. even if that means that that form of survival is not ra as radical as it should be. And um, he and so there are three modes that Rabbito sees this, the church in: it's survival, elevation, and liberation. And I, I really believe, between King's years and now, we are in um, an elevation mode um, where we are uh, emboldened to institutions because we know that assimilation may mean our survival, because liberation always costs you something. Hmm. Is the uh, assimilation a necessity that you say, oh, we just have to go through this, let's do it, or is it a negative thing that puts off liberation? I think it's negative. For instance, uh, what's the guy who discovered the AME church? His name is Casey, black guy. What's the name? Um, come on, guys, help me. Somebody say it from Pennsylvania, from Philly. You just took church history, Josh. I know you should no, know this. I, I, <laughs> well, while, while we're thinking about that, I have a question for you, Josiah. Uh, before we get to uh, the re-radicalization of MLK, which I we got to get to, uh, you're a younger guy. We're, yeah, I know. Uh, Josiah, you're a younger guy. You're 25 years old. You went out to Ferguson a couple times during uh, when all that was going down two summers ago and beyond. Uh, and I've heard that of the younger generation, there, there's kind of a disconnect between the old guard civil rights movement and the younger people. There's a disconnect between African-American activists and the African-American church in the sense that the church now is not viewed as a resource, which is like the exact opposite as the civil rights movement where everything came out of the church. Right. What are you seeing? What do you like when we celebrate Martin Luther King and different things like that? How is a, the younger group kind of? Looking at these things, for, at least for yourself. Yeah, I mean, w w let me say this. Uh, you know, I come from a biracial home, and then furthermore, my church experience has always been in non-denominational evangelical circles. I, I'm not an evangelical and anymore. You were born in Canada. By I way. was born in Canada, but um, you know, so so <laughs> in that sense, I I not I can't speak as as much as Pierre has to the black church. I can speak from what I've seen and things that I've noticed over the past you know two years, and specifically since August 9th, two thousand fourteen, when Michael Brown was murdered. But um, so the question is, how do people maybe in in my age bracket and people who I have uh, maybe participated in demonstrations with, how have they? maybe differed or aligned themselves with MLK's vision and with uh, activism, you know, maybe old guard activism, we can say that or something. Uh, I would say that it's different and similar. I mean, the, the whole entire thing that I've noticed throughout my whole entire life, whether it's my extended family on, on my black side or whether it's, it's my immediate family, while people have had different opinions how to attain it, liberation is always the primary goal. And you can describe liberation in various ways, but I think basically, I think that like someone like Ta-Nehisi Coates does it really, just the, 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 the fight for life and the protection of your body. 
you know, and, and that is, those are things that are always being thought about by people who have to be on the wrong end of white supremacy. And so I think that for the younger generation, I think that they can look at someone like King and they can appreciate him maybe to a certain extent because you can say a lot of things about King, but one thing that you can't say about him is, you know, he was just doing it for attention or he didn't really... I mean, the guy died for what he believed in, you know, and he died for other people. One of the best quotes by King is, you know, every day you should wake up and ask yourself, what am I doing for others? And so he really believed that. Um, But where I think maybe that... Where I think maybe that people who I've interacted with for the past two years in the movement differ is uh, the whole question of nonviolence. And I want to be careful here because I think that times where people have critiqued the movement for being too violent, the Black Lives Matter movement has turned that question around and said, the question is not about violence or nonviolence. The question is about really, ultimately, who is that violence coming from and who is it being directed to? And that's a question that's never asked in the movement, ultimately. It's always, oh, you got, you know, if you guys are a little bit more nonviolent, I think people would maybe listen to you. But that totally ignores the deeper question, which is who is ultimately the arbiter of force and who is on, again, the wrong end of that force? That's the question that you have to ask before any questions of nonviolence and tactics be discussed in any way, shape, or form. So on that front, I think that's a major, you know, I think there's a major fork in the road there because people keep coming and saying, man, you guys need to be more peaceful. And it's like that the peace is not, the onus is not on us to be peaceful, right? The onus should be on those who are sworn to serve and protect. However, we know over the past two years, and I mean, people in my neighborhood in North Lawndale, they've known for a lot longer than that. We've known, especially for the past two years, though, that violence is is not something that just happens out of thin air. You know, there's there's a reaction, and there's uh, there there rather there's an action, and then there's a reaction, and that really is the thing that needs to be focused on. Yeah, asking about nonviolence is kind of like the uh, culture of poverty question. Is people who are outside of that culture will ask about, well, is there a culture of poverty going along here as a way of blaming the victim? And it's like that question can only be asked from the inside, from people who are there. And then they can discuss that. But if that's just asked from the outside, and I agree that for King, the question of peace was asked from the the front of the movement that he was attempting to lead. It wasn't being, and oftentimes it's asked now from outside the movement of like, hey, you shouldn't be so violent. You should be like those other guys a long time ago that we ignored also. Things like that. So, Dave, I know you got a lot to say about the peace movement, and then we got to get to uh, re-radicalizing, if it could be done. No, I just want to ask the question, because uh, I just heard you talk, Josiah, and, um, okay, I, I think one of the things we learned from MLK, but it's, it's so deep in the whole peace movement, uh, Anabaptist movement, the understanding that the world is uh, full of, it runs on antagonism and violence, hate. Um, and so in, and I think this is MLK, uh, one of the things we learn in his life is we become the place where the violence, the direction of the violence is being revealed, right? But in order for it to be revealed, 
we cannot participate in violence. Actually, violence is the way the ideologies of power suck us in. Sure. Yeah, I mean, but I would say this. I think that you have to be careful whenever talking about... You meaning white man have to be careful? No, I'm, I'm saying you as in us sitting at this table, okay? Or so, just anybody outside the... Outside, outside the movement, but, I mean, just, just listen to this. I think, that, I think that you have to be careful when you are talking about the the black lives matter movement or any civil rights movement whether it's you know Malcolm X and or whether it's Angela Davis or you know mm-hmm. i think that you have to be careful when saying you know well if they would just antagonize less or you know th- there needs to they need to have more of a peaceful disposition because I think that this is the thing that I've seen happen, especially over the past two years, when people have brought up the just absolute, unbelievably unethical statistics on mass incarceration, or people have brought up the disproportionate amount of uh, police shootings that involve young black men, or people have brought up... Um, you know, the, the fact that neighborhoods like North Lawndale were created by the government. When people bring that up, okay, when I bring that up, people say, oh, well, you're being antagonistic. Like, you're just trying, you're a race baiter, or you're just trying to start something. And, that, and, that, and in a sense, right, that's, that's right, isn't it? Because I'm, because I'm bringing something up, I'm trying to shake them loose from their ideology, I, and I'm not doing it, I would like to think, I'm not doing it to throw it in their face, especially Christians, but I'm doing it to exhort them, right? So I thought of this the other well, day. I was reading to disrupt. To disrupt them, right? But, but some people would say that, was a, that, that that's antagonistic. But I, so I was thinking about this the other day. I was reading this passage in, um, I want to say it was Luke. And I'm an Old Testament guy, so I don't always remember everything that's happening in the New Testament. But I know that, I know that uh, so the situation was Jesus, but literally. <laughs> so Jesus was talking and he's saying, woe to the Pharisees, you know, they do this and they do that. And at one point, a lawyer says to Jesus, I said, you know, when you say that stuff, it offends us too. And then Jesus goes into these big, long woes. He says, oh, fine, well, woe to the lawyers. Woe to... And so he says, in effect, what I, what I got from that story was, okay, so I'm going to say all this stuff about the Pharisees. And then you guys are saying, you know, you lawyers who I'm not directly speaking to, you guys are going to say, oh, that's offending us. Like, I can't believe that. And Jesus says... Oh, you were offended by that? Well, I'll offend you directly to your face, like if that's what you need. Now, some people would look at Jesus and say, well, that was really antagonistic. And so the whole question of, like, antagonism, I think, can get kind of murky. And I, there has be to be a misused. better way to talk about that. You, do you understand what I'm saying? Well, I'm always trying to find better ways to talk about things, uh, and that includes this one. But I think what you're saying is the nonviolent uh, strategy or whatever you want to call it, principle can be used to shut people down. Is that what you Yes. Saying? And it can be used, and, and, and I guess I would differentiate and say, if you are truly being a center of presence and peace, you will disrupt, and people's anger will come out, but that in no way makes you complicit with the anger and the violence. It's a it's a cathartic release that exposes what's at work from whence salvation can come. Yeah. 
All right, well, to wrap it up, we're going to send it back to Pierre. How, in a couple points, what would it look like for you, for the church you're part of, for the whole church to be re-radicalized by uh, MLK? Yeah, just to wrap it up. Um, a, a unapologetic love for the oppressed. Uh, I, I feel, I feel so often that love for us is always kind of qualified. You know, um, hey, um, yeah, go against white supremacy, but like, but like, uh, don't forget about black on black crime, or um, um, you know, go against police brutality, but don't forget against violence or police, and we never have forgotten about it. Uh, I mean, white supremacy is for it, it, the deconstructing white supremacy is for so we can be in relationship with each other. Like it's all for our brotherhood. Like, Amen. I feel like I, a lot of times I'm fighting for people Amen. that don't even know I'm fighting for them. Like, like my white brothers um, and sisters in the church. Like, like, dude, I'm fighting for you so we can be friends. I, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded. It makes. Um, I think in John six. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, and then, like, people start leaving him, um, I think that kind of, like, marks kind of, like, the de-radicalization and um, the radicalization of Jesus. So, our, it, so, so one group may say, you're the bread of life, and we interpret that in an abstract way. Yeah, yeah you're the bread of life, so when I pray, you fill my soul. Or in a concrete way, in a material way, Jesus, if I follow you, as long as you're giving me food, I'll still follow you. But maybe practical theology may be a good guide for this, where there's tension that Jesus is our sustenance and he's also, um, uh, you know, our, our spiritual director. So, I mean, we, so yes, let's give coats to homeless kids, but let's also pray that the Holy Spirit takes away homelessness. You know, let's let's go against police brutality, but let's also pray that hearts are changed and people don't make up their mind before they show up to the park to kill kids. You know, because they have a toy gun in their hand. And so, I I, I think that there needs to be tension, which goes back to your peace thing: is that peace is not peace without the absence of tension, and that tension should not be provoked or contrived by the. Um, by, by the marginalized of the oppressed, but it should be exposed to what it is. And I, and I think that's what the cross does. Like one, I mean, the cross does a lot of things, which Paul gets at, but one thing that it does do was expose how evil this world is. And that's what the bodies of Mike Brown, Tamir Rice, and Betty Jones and Rakia Boy all expose is how evil this world is. And we should be shocked and, 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 and horrified by that, just like the image of our Savior on the cross, and I believe that is the starting point for reconciliation. Sometimes you have to be broke before you reconcile. Amen. So thanks, Pierre. Thanks, Josiah, for coming. Uh, if you, if we were ever to sit down again and have like four mics instead of passing around two mics, what would we talk about? First you, Pierre, and then Josiah, you can answer. What would you want to talk about if you came on the Theology on Mission podcast again? How do we preach this? How do we preach this reconciliation peace justice that's good yeah and it's not cheesy 
Not cheesy. All right. Josiah, he was looking at me when he said not cheesy, so I, I, I think he meant something by that. Josiah, what, what are we talking about? Theology and Mission Roundtable. I think two. a very real but a difficult thing to talk about would be kind of the, the new black theology and how that practically affects the church. So when I say new black theology for listeners out there, I'm specifically thinking of Brian Bantam, Willie Jennings, and then J. Cameron Carter, and how kind of their three texts, I mean, and race by Carter is, is a seminal text. I mean, we're going to talk about that for the next 200 years, but how, how those three books can be practically explain in a church congregation. Excellent. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks for everyone who's listening. Thank this you. is Theology on Mission coming to you from Northern Seminary in the Founders Room today. I hope the little fan in the corner wasn't bothering anybody. Uh, if you enjoyed this with Pierre and Josiah, please let us know uh, wherever it is you might find us. Signing off, this is Jeff Holsclaw. And Dave Fitch. All right, over and out. <laughs>